Now we're going through Matthew's Gospel and we've been seeing the teaching that Jesus brings to us first of all about the manner of prayer and then the content of our prayers. He's been contrasting the right way of praying with the way that the Pharisees and the hypocrites prayed. An important thing for them was vain, empty repetitions. An important thing was to be seen of men, long prayers as a display of their piety. And in contrast to that, Jesus' prayer is very short, very direct, very simple and down to earth. And yet, although these petitions that are before us now are in fact very simple, they do contain an enormous amount of meaning. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I hope that as we look at that verse this evening, we'll find that this influences our minds and teaches us the right outlook in regard to God's will. I hope that it will influence our conduct so that we will put into practice God's will more fully and that it will influence our outlook upon the future that we might appreciate more fully all that God has in store for his people. And so I hope that we'll find that it influences every part of our lives and that it, though simple, it really is very full of meaning. May your kingdom come. Do you think we really ought to pray that now? After all, didn't Jesus himself say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began his ministry by saying, The kingdom of God is near. It's just round the corner. It's about to come. And as he went on in his ministry, it became very clear that the kingdom of God had really arrived. When he cast out devils, he said, If I, by the finger of God, cast out devils, then is the kingdom of God come amongst you. There's the rule of God at work. The devils haven't authority. They can't continue. Christ is king. Christ is ruling. He is in control. God is at work through him in his kingly power. And by the display of that power over evil spirits, Jesus proclaimed clearly that the kingdom had arrived. And obviously, once he had died, he was raised from the dead. He was acknowledged as a prince and a saviour. And so he was brought up into heaven. And he was acknowledged to be the king of glory, the Lord Jehovah, full of might and strength, mighty in battle, as we were thinking this morning. And he was made to sit at the right hand of God. And he said to his disciples before he ascended, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And that was a description of his kingly power. The kingdom is, has come. 
the kingdom came in the life and ministry of Jesus. From all that he said, that was very, very obvious. So why do we say, may your kingdom come, if it's already here? Is this prayer out of date? Was it appropriate before Jesus had completed his ministry? Or is it for all time? How do we understand it against that background? Well, we've got to say that in the Bible, when we speak about the kingdom of God, it means different things in different places. In one sense, the kingdom of God has come. It's here, a real living thing that was brought into being by the work and ministry of our Lord. It's here amongst the hearts of God's people, where there is a person that says, not what I will, but what you will. There Christ reigns as king, and there his kingdom is in existence. Where there's a person that turns away from selfishness with hatred and says, I want to repudiate that way of life. There, the kingship of Christ is a reality. Where there is a dedicated life, where a person is striving to bring every part of his life into conformity to the mind of Christ, there is the kingdom already in existence. The kingdom of Christ exists in the hearts of his people that are yielded to him, that acknowledge him as Lord, that submit to his authority, that repudiate their own control of their own lives and say, it's your will that counts as far as I'm concerned. That's where the kingdom already exists. But, although in that sense, the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is here in that sense because Jesus said so. The kingdom of God is within you, he said. The kingdom of God is a reality in the heart and in the life of the person yielded to me. But although the kingdom is here, although it has come, nevertheless there's still a sense in which we look for the kingdom to come in a fullest way in the future. There are greater things in store for God's people than what we see at the moment. There is a fuller demonstration of the reign and the kingship of Christ that is yet to be made real to us in the future. There's a climax in the affairs of Christ's kingdom that we have to look forward to and pray for. 1 Corinthians 15 depicts Christ sitting, waiting, until all his enemies are brought into submission to him. There are those that are his, and they're still in the world. There are people that are his, and probably they're not even born yet. There are people that still have to yield, and to be brought into submission. And only then, when that has been completed, will the kingdom have fully come. And these folks are not few in numbers. It's not just a repeat of what we've got here at the moment a small remnant amongst a large population. We look for greater things than what has already taken place up till now. The kingdoms of this world 
will become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ as Mrs. Thatcher rules us and as Ronald Reagan rules in the states and then as other leaders of the world rule their own countries so it will be that someday Christ will rule these nations he will be king of kings he will be lord of lords to his authority there will be no limit to his kingdom there will be no bound the kingdoms of this world will substantially submit to Christ and the world possessed by him and ruled by him and governed by him in grace to the gospel is what we can look for that's surely what we were singing about in Psalm 72 very familiar words but do we ever grasp what they really say men shall be blessed in him and blessed all nations shall him call that's what we look for the time when all nations will say that Christ is blessed not when a few people in every nation will say that Christ is blessed we have substantially got that already but when nations as such acknowledge the rule and the authority of Christ and say that he is blessed that's the climax to Psalm 72 that is full of the kingship of Christ the whole earth let his glory fill that's what we have to look for in the coming of the kingdom of Christ and not only that but we look in this respect for his second coming we look for the time when even evil men that have lived in this world will understand and acknowledge the righteousness of the purposes of God we look forward to the time when Christ will come and with the splendor of his second coming will destroy the man of sin we look to the time when he will with a shout of command raise the dead and show his authority over them we look forward to the time when all nations will be summoned before him and they will bow before him in the day of judgment and we look for the time when he will be vindicated before the eyes of all and we look for a time when the, the, the righteous will be received into a new heavens and a new earth from which everything that is contrary to the will of God will be altogether removed and every trace of evil will be entirely destroyed from it we look forward to the time when he will wipe away tears from every eye and there will be no more sorrow or pain because everything that is contrary to his will will be completely removed from our very environment that's the kingdom that we look forward to it isn't yet a reality it isn't yet with us but it is promised clearly in the scriptures and it is described in some detail in the word of God and when we say may your kingdom come it is to that particularly that we look forward to and it is that especially that we pray for so what really are we asking when we ask for this well let's just go over this I think that one thing that must go on in our hearts and minds as we pray this prayer is this we must be asking that every part of our lives 
may be subject to God. It's no good saying, may your kingdom come, if we don't want Christ to rule over us. It's no good looking to future glory, if we are determined to live in our selfishness and go on in our pride and in our own ways. To pray this with any degree of sincerity involves that we should sincerely yearn for God's rule to be made increasingly real in our own lives and in our own experience. It is an act of hypocrisy to pray for this and not honestly be wanting holiness. It is an act of insincerity to pray for this and not at the same time be asking and wanting that the Holy Spirit should search us and try us and point out the evil in us and lead us in the ways of God. This prayer involves that we should be saying to God, may your rule be established in my life. May it come into every part of my life, into my religious and spiritual life, into my family life, into my business life, into my private life. May your Holy Spirit bring to my attention every area of my life that needs correction. That's the sort of thing that is involved if we are going to pray this sincerely. If we have hesitation about our ability to pray this prayer sincerely, let's simply resolve once again to yield our lives fully and completely to Christ. Let's in our hearts acknowledge that we have been lax in in yielding to the authority of Christ. And let's say once and for all, my desire is simply this, to do your will, I take delight, not what I will, but what you will. Another thing that's involved in, in praying this prayer, we are asking that folks in substantial numbers be converted. We're not asking that there be a trickle of believers. We're asking that folks will be coming in like a flood. We're not asking that there'll be a small remnant and a faithful witness kept for the maintenance of the church. We're asking that the church will flourish and prosper and that people in substantial numbers will know the experience of grace and be brought within the church to show by a life of service and obedience that they have yielded to the rule of Christ. It's a prayer for revival. It's a prayer for conversions. Not for folks to attend the church. Not for folks to come to Bible studies. Not for open doors when we do door-to-door visitation. It's a prayer for folks to be converted. And there's no use praying this prayer unless we want folks to be converted. Unless we would delight to see folks flooding in here in substantial numbers. There's no use praying this prayer unless we want our neighbours to be converted and our families to be converted. And there's little point in praying that folks in India, Africa and Peru would be converted if we show little concern for our neighbours and friends around us. And that's the area of our lives that is challenged when we think of this particular application of this prayer. How concerned are you 
for the people that you meet from day to day? Are you praying for them? Have you given them a thought? Or don't you care about the reality of hell in their experience? If we pray this prayer honestly, then surely it would lead us automatically to be more actively concerned in prayer and activity for the conversion of the unconverted around us. And if we feel a measure of unease when we think of what, we are, what is involved in this prayer, then let us repent of our coldness of heart and our lack of zeal and our lack of concern and let us show genuine love and concern for the unconverted around us. And then a third and last thing that is involved in praying this prayer is simply this. We're praying for the second coming of Christ. We're asking, as the Catechism says, and it's a very interesting expression, we're asking that his kingdom of glory be hastened. And that, of course, if you think about it, is a very interesting thing for a Calvinistic doc uh, document to say, that his kingdom of glory be hastened. And that is very strong language. It indicates the utmost yearning for future glory. It indicates a real des desire to see the second coming of Christ and all that will be involved in it. And it means that our hearts and minds are fairly constantly recurring to the future glory that will take place at the coming of our Lord and Saviour. Do you have difficulty praying about that? Well, I would suggest here that what is wrong if we find difficulty is simply this. We've got an appalling ignorance of the doctrines of the second coming. We've got a terrible lack of knowledge about what is involved at the second coming of our Lord and Saviour. And could I suggest that if we have some hesitation about praying for the second coming of Christ, we should make it a matter of study of God's word to find out what is involved in the second coming of Christ. Could I suggest here something for you to read? If you've got back numbers of the instructor, perhaps, you might like to read a series of articles, Faith in the Future, that goes over what is expected before the second coming and what is involved in the second coming of Christ. And there's a book in the library, The Momentous Event by W.J. Greer. It's number 241 in the library uh, there. Take that book out and have a read of it and study it and think about the glory of what is yet to be. We've neglected this to our cost and it's our spiritual impoverishment that is result from the neglect of that wonderful truth. We need to realize that the second coming of Christ could take place in the lifetime of most of us here and it is altogether fitting that we should pray with a real sense of the possibility of us partaking in these events that we can pray then meaningfully and personally for the second coming of our Lord. And that is what is involved in saying, may your kingdom come. 
Now we want to go on to the second part of this verse as well. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we started our explanation of the previous part with a little problem. How can you pray, may your kingdom come? Isn't the kingdom here already? But looking at this part, we've got an even bigger problem for folks that were brought up in our tradition. How can we pray this? May your will be done. Does it not imply that God's will is not being done? And of course, any reasonable understanding of that text would make us say, that is just what it does imply. That is in fact what it means. That God's will is at present not being done. And of course, that doesn't sound right in our ears when we think about it from our traditional Calvinistic point of view. What's what's the solution to that problem you see the scriptures teach with the greatest clarity that God's will is being done the shorter catechism teaches that all things work out according to the counsel of God's will and that is not something that is merely human teaching it's written in every page of the Bible that God rules, that God is God, almighty and sovereign. And there are explicit statements that say very, very plainly that God rules. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. What God has decided to do is unchangeable. And once he set his mind to do a thing, it's going to be done. He does his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stop him from doing his purpose. No one can even say to him, what are you doing? Because God is God and he does his will. Ephesians 1.11 describes God as the one that works out all things according to the purpose of his will and we consider it heresy even to hint that God's will is not being performed so what does it mean when Jesus tells us to pray may your will be done well there are two ways of looking at God's will and we've said this before so we'll briefly revise it there are two ways of looking at God's will there's the secret will of God and that is expressed in the decrees of God and by this will he decrees everything that happens and it happens inevitably and fully big things and small things things good and things bad the conversion of the sinner and the perdition of the lost are determined by the permissive or decretive will of God. The good thing 
the bad thing are equally in his control because he is sovereign and in that sense he has foreordained everything the elector saved the unbeliever because of their own sin is lost folks are born folks are die folks die and it's all in the hand of God in accordance with that decree of God from all eternity and that is one biblical way of looking at the will of God but there's another way of looking at the will of God and it's equally biblical we can say very plainly that God has expressed his will in the commands that he has given us when he says remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy we say that is the will of God for us and when he says you shall not kill we say that is God's will expressed in that commandment that men should not kill their fellow men and when God commands all men everywhere to repent we say too or we ought to say too at least that that is God's will expressed in his command but in that sense God's will is not being done not everybody is keeping the Sabbath and not everybody is respecting the value of human life and not everybody is obeying the command to all men everywhere to repent God has commanded it but man is not performing what has been commanded God has expressed his will but man is not obeying his will and in that sense God's will is not being done God's will is being trampled underfoot and people are saying these commands have no relevance to me I'll go my own way now it's about that will that we are praying we are praying here that the will of God expressed in his commands that that will of God would be done on earth as it is done in heaven we're praying for the time when folks will respect the Sabbath we're praying for the time when people will acknowledge the value of human life and will stop the murder of unborn bairns and all sorts of other things like that we're praying for the time when the family circle will be respected and when the sanctity of the, of the home will be upheld and we're praying for the time when all men everywhere will repent and believe the gospel as they have been commanded by the sovereign Lord to do we are praying that the will of God expressed in his commands that is so widely despised at the moment would be actually performed and would be done willingly and sincerely and spontaneously as surely as his will is done in heaven we are looking forward to a world that is ruled by Christ a world in which his will as expressed in his commands is accepted and honoured and that's what we mean I think when we say may your will be done on earth we're not talking about the will of God expressed in his decrees which is always done we're talking about his will expressed in commandments which we do not see largely done at the moment and we're saying may people upon earth in general submit themselves to the clearly expressed will of God that is given to us 
in the commands of scripture now if that's what this means it's got something very very important to teach us in regard to the way that we pray and that we act in accordance with the will of God the thing that is to guide our prayers and the thing that is to guide our conduct is not the will of God that has been expressed in his decrees but the will of God that is expressed in his commands and if you don't agree with that this petition of the Lord's prayer makes no sense at all what is uppermost for man's conduct is the will of God expressed in his commands we have to take that seriously as what God wants us to do we have to take that seriously as the rule that is to direct our conduct and we have to acknowledge that expression of God's will as the will that is to direct our lives and of course the reason why we have to emphasize this is very simply in regard to the matter of salvation nobody here for a moment doubts that it's God's will that people should respect the Sabbath or should uphold the value of life in these respects nobody doubts that these commands of God are the expression of his will for us but what happens when God commands all men everywhere to repent they begin to ask is this the will of God for me and they begin to ask about the decretive will of God the will of God expressed in his decrees and what folks some folks at least concern themselves about is not the question of whether they've repented or not the thing that occupies their mind is am I amongst the elect or not and they've got things the wrong way around the will of God expressed in his commands is what is to direct our conduct what he has commanded us to do is his will for us and the question of salvation revolves around this in regard to our human responsibility do not ask yourself am I amongst the elect but ask yourself first and foremost have I repented as God has commanded me to do have I believed the gospel as I have been invited and treated and urged to do on the authority of God himself that's the will of God for us he does not wish that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and in that sense he has given the command to all and every person without exception all men everywhere are commanded to repent and as surely as you strive to keep the Sabbath and as surely as you uphold the authority of the sixth commandment so also you should uphold the authority of that commandment and see our responsibility is laid upon me to repent and God is urging me to repent and his will for me is that I should repent because he has commanded me to do so and that's the logical outcome of interpreting this prayer in the Lord's prayer in this way and for me it can't be interpreted in any other way what is uppermost is the will of a God expressed in his commands that's what is involved here and that's what Christ told us 
to have uppermost in regard to our conduct. And that simply means that if you are asking yourself, am I amongst the elect? You're asking yourself the wrong question. Instead of torturing your mind with that question, instead of coming to an impasse over such questions as these, ask yourself this question. Have you repented? Study that one. Examine your life over that one. Turn that one over in your mind as much as you've turned the other one over. Because that's the will of God for sinners. The will of God expressed in his commands. Now, when we look at that petition, may your revealed will, the revealed will expressed in the commands of scripture, may that will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We realize that this second petition is really saying virtually the same thing as the first one. May the rule of Christ be established. May the time come when all peoples respect and honor God's commands and act in accordance with the clear injunctions of the scriptures. May the time come when the Ten Commandments are acknowledged as the authority for people's conduct and when all the commands of scripture are taken at their face value as something to be obeyed that's the sort of thing that we are praying for and it's very similar as I say to the idea that Christ should rule over us but what is new in the second petition is the last part of the verse May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now here is a pattern for our obedience to God's commands. We have to obey his commands in the way in which these commands or his commands are obeyed in heaven. Where everything is perfect. That is the standard by which our obedience is to be measured. Now, just a little about what that means. It means, first of all, that we have to seek an obedience which is spontaneous. Look at the angels. There are the beings in heaven that are subject to God's commands. And uh, as far as we know, there is absolute ungrudging obedience to the commands that are given spontaneously without a shadow of reserve without any sense of difficulty without any sense of compulsion that goes against the grain they obey the commands of God there's a measure of hearty willingness about it and our prayer is that God's will should be done on earth as it is done in heaven spontaneously now there's something again that is heart searching for us how often we have to push ourselves to obedience and how often obedience goes against the grain even of the converted person and of course it's better to do something unwillingly than not to do it at all and it's better to push ourselves to do it 
than to leave it undone. And sometimes too, there'll be no joy in obedience to God, as there was no joy but deep distress in the heart of Christ when he embraced the cross. But there was a willingness, a spontaneity about it. He embraced it willingly, although without a conscious sense of joy. And that's the standard that we've got to pursue. It won't come easily, but it's something we've to seek for. You, as a Christian, I'm talking to Christians, you push yourself to obedience, even against the grain, and pray for the day when you won't have to. You do what you know is, to be right, is right, even if you don't really want to. But look forward to the day when you'll do that task joyfully. Because that's what we're praying for here. Obedience that is spontaneous. Not only spontaneity. Immediate obedience characterizes the angels. Why do you think angels have wings? Or why do you think they're depicted as having wings? And there's a variety of reasons, but I think the obvious one is they are mobile. They move around rapidly on their wings. Wings suggest the speed at which they move. And that suggests that immediately they fulfill the commission that they have been directed to accomplish. They speed upon their designated tasks without any delay. Is that the case with us? Immediate obedience. Is it not the case, rather, that when we feel compelled to do something, we too often put off, and the thing never gets done? I can think of the person that says at the end of one communion season, next time I'll be there. This time I'm sure I'll be there with God's people as I know ought to be. But by the time next communion comes around, the fears are there again. And if I may say so, in some cases at least, the disobedience is there again. And that impression that they had has gone because they didn't do anything about it immediately. In three months' time, in six months' time, I'll make my profession. But because there wasn't immediate obedience, there was no obedience. And how many times we've read God's word. And under the impulse of a sermon or simply in prayer. We've had the knowledge and the impression. I ought to do this or I ought to do that. But we've gone away without doing anything about it immediately. And our conscience nags us for a day or two. And then it stops bothering us. And we give up our resolve. And it never gets done. Whereas if we'd gone out and done it immediately, the blessing of obedience would be ours. Immediate obedience is the obedience characteristic of heaven and the obedience that we're praying for when we say, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, not only spontaneous and immediate obedience, but full obedience. 
There's no need to say this about the angels in heaven. They perfectly perform God's purpose. They are sinless in their very being. And that obviously means that not, nothing is left undone of all that has been commanded. But what about ourselves? Do we take pains over the work of the gospel? Or for that matter, do we take pains about our housework? Or our daily employment? Because after all, God is our master in these things too. And everything that lies to our hand, we should do to the utmost of our ability, as fully and as perfectly as we possibly can according to our abilities and the time available. Fully. Uh, and that surely should be the characteristic particularly of our spiritual service and worship. Is it a formality or something that we do to the full? In a work that is done fully, there's two things I think that are characteristic. Proper preparation and proper follow-up. And I wonder is that characteristic of our worship, of our service? Do we come here already prepared for worship? And when we go home, do we follow up on what we've heard? It's only when we do that sort of thing that we're going to get the full blessing from the worship and from the sermon. Prepare our hearts beforehand and think about it and do something about it afterwards. That is what full obedience involves. And as it is that way with our worship, so it should be that way with every part of our service. And how sadly we fall short of what we ought to be in that respect. But don't worry about it too much. Pray for the obedience on earth that is similar to that obedience that is given in heaven. And look forward to the time when spontaneous, immediate and full obedience will be characteristic of you by the grace of God. Because you see, we can be sure of one thing, that he'll perfect the work that he's begun and he'll complete the work of salvation begun on his own. Well, what's our reaction to the second part to be? May your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. It gives us a sense of deep penitence and sorrow and shame to think of our lack of spontaneity, our lack of immediacy, and our lack of fullness in service and obedience. And surely what we can best do is come to God in the words of the psalmist, Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord. I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. I thought upon my former ways and did my life well try. I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep myself I did prepare. That's a psalm we'll be singing in a moment, but that's the sort of psalm that should express our sense of penitence and 
fresh resolve when faced with this petition of the Lord's prayer thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven it's a fresh commitment to God in service and in obedience and I hope that when we come to sing it we'll all make it our own may God bless to us his word let us pray we come with a sense of shame and sorrow to you that our standards of obedience have been so low and our desires for future blessings have been so limited and we rejoice that this part of your word opens up to us such a wide field of blessing and brings to us the hope of a great and overflowing time of revival and growth and of the flourishing of your cause may our hearts delight in that hope and may we cling to it in faith and look forward to it with confidence